The sea is a fickle mistress, at once beguiling and deadly. She's been known to take many sailors' lives, but in this case, the sea is innocent of taking lives, but a sailor isn't. The tale of Terry Joe Duperalt is a true crime classic, a heartbreaking story of a young girl's struggle to survive amidst unspeakable tragedy. It's a testament to the power of the human spirit and a reminder that even in the darkest of circumstances, hope can still shine through. Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. I'm your host, Sandy. This episode is the very first case I ever produced back when I was living on a boat and daydreaming about starting a podcast that covers true crime stories from all over the world. Most of you haven't heard it because I took it down a long time ago. I'm resurrecting it today as we close in on episode 100. To all of you wonderfully twisted listeners who have recommended it over the years, thank you. Let's dive in. On Monday, November 13, 1961, an oil tanker was heading toward Puerto Rico. The ship and all aboard were cutting through the North Providence Channel in the northern Bahamas when a lookout spotted a dinghy. The small wooden dinghy held a man, and behind him, trailing in a life raft, was what appeared to be a child. As the massive tanker maneuvered its way next to the tiny dinghy, the man inside identified himself as Julian Harvey, captain of a sailboat called the Bluebell. He shouted to the tanker's crew that he had a dead baby here, and he thinks her name is Terry Jo Duperall. The dead baby in the life raft was actually Renee Duperall, who was only seven years old. The Duperalt family lived in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Arthur Duperalt was a military man, having served in the Navy. Due to his time in the service, he had learned to love sailing, and many of the bedtime stories he'd tell his future children consisted of seafaring tales. He wanted to instill a sense of adventure in his children, and dreamed of sailing around the world himself. He was an optometrist by trade, and was known to be a gifted professional. He embraced the newest technology, which was contact lenses, and they made him financially secure. By 1961, he had saved enough money to give his family and himself an extended trip at sea. After sailing for many summers in the waters of Lake Michigan, he felt like they were ready to try an adventure out on the open ocean. His lovely wife, Jean, was independent, beautiful, and a homemaker who loved gardening, entertaining, and, of course, she had to be pretty adventurous to agree to Arthur's plans. The Duperalt family were all athletic and enjoyed the outdoors. The oldest son, Brian, was 14 years old and a freshman. He loved to build things and was quite an artist. Terry Joe was 12 and a tomboy who loved the outdoors. Once she made a loincloth out of skins of dead animals she found in the forest. Now I know some of you are thinking serial killer, but no, she just wanted to be like her hero at the moment, Tarzan, the king of the jungle. She certainly fit the profile. She was tall, slim, athletic, and enjoyed time alone, especially making forts and supplying them. She loved to read and spend time riding horses and tending animals. Little Renee was only seven years old. She was a cutie patootie, just like her sister, but much more girly than Terry Joe. She preferred dolls and playing dress-up more than animal pelts in the outdoors. Arthur Duperalt, at age 40, had decided the time was right to charter a boat out of Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and sail into the Bahamas. He studied charter companies and finally found a boat that would accommodate his family of five. 
He then found someone to take over his optometry practice for a full year. Withdrawing his kids from school wasn't a problem, as he and his wife planned to boat school their kids. Excitedly, and with a little fear, they loaded their things up into two station wagons and headed down to Florida. One of the station wagons pulled a hardtop trailer that they used to sleep in on the drive south. The plan was that they would spend the fall testing their sea skills and fortitude. If things went well, they would look to buy a boat and take an extended vacation. On Wednesday, November 8th, the Duperalts boarded the Bluebell. The Bluebell was a two-masted sailboat. It was originally built to race. The mizzen mast, or the mast in the front, was right in front of the cockpit, which had a nice seating area outdoors, and the steering wheel was at the back of the cockpit. In front of the cockpit was a 21-foot-long cabin that you could step down into. Attached to the front of the boat, on the left side, was the ship's wooden dinghy and a rubber life raft that could hold five people. Inside the cabin was a small kitchen and seating area for eating. The table would fold down into a bed. There was also a head, which consisted of a toilet and shower area. Further forward was a master bedroom that held a queen-sized bed, and then, at the very front, was a V-berth, which held two more beds. I'm telling you this now so you'll know where the family slept. The Duperalt adults slept in the master cabin. Their son slept on what most of us would call a couch in the main cabin, and finally their daughters would sleep in an area under the cockpit where there was another bed. At the very back of the boat, behind the cockpit, was the engine room. The boat could easily sleep five or six people in the main saloon and bedrooms, which left the V-berth for the hired captain and crew. This worked out well, because the V-berth, which was at the very front of the boat, was only accessible from the top side and not through the queen berth. It was perfect for the family, and funnily enough, had been built in the Duperalt's home state of Wisconsin before ending up in Fort Lauderdale. Their captain, Julian, aged 44, was a handsome, retired Air Force pilot. He had received awards for outstanding service while in the military and moved to Florida to enjoy his retirement. Once there, he became a regular at the bars and was always flirting with women. He signed on to be the captain of the Bluebell in early 1961. According to most, Captain Julian was very well-mannered and good-looking. It was rumored that he had been a model at one time. He was into fitness and kept himself slim and trim. When he wasn't out drinking or working out, he was often seen working on boats in the Bahia Mar Marina. He liked to go shirtless and preferred to be pictured that way when photos were taken. His only flaws were an occasional stammer and a mild case of lazy eye, which was ironic since he seemed to have a wandering eye for the ladies. He went through them faster than I go through a stack of salt and vinegar chips. He had married his sixth wife earlier the same year that he took the job as captain on the Bluebell. Mary, ten years his junior, was an aspiring writer who had been a former flight attendant. She also was from Wisconsin originally and connected well with the Duperalts. On Wednesday the 8th, the owner of the Bluebell, as well as Julian, his wife, and the Duperalt family, met to board the boat and make final plans for crossing to the Bahamas. The children excitedly played on the deck as the adults finalized their plans. The boat had been provisioned for a week 
but more groceries could be bought in the Bahamas if need be. The owner of the boat noted that young Brian held a twenty-two rifle, and he asked the boy what he planned to do with the gun. Shoot sharks, was the gleeful response. It was the 1960s, and that wouldn't be allowed these days. Later that morning, the Bluebell's engine rumbled softly as Captain Julian steered the boat out of the harbor and away from the docks. They sailed out of the dark waters of the harbor into the open sea and finally into the deep, quick-moving Gulf Stream. The Gulf Stream is like a fast-moving river inside the ocean. It squeezes right between Florida and the Bahamas and has a very fast current that pushes upwards to the north and out into the middle of the Great Atlantic. Due east of Fort Lauderdale lay over 700 islands that make up the Bahamas archipelago. These beautiful little islands hold so much maritime history, and their beauty alone would hopefully fulfill the Duperalt family's dreams. The winds blew at about 18 knots as the boat sliced through the waves, tossing salt spray onto the excited sailors. Their adventure had finally begun. Terry Joe and Brian hung their legs from the bowsprit, letting their feet dunk into the water as the bluebell plowed through the waves. It took them several hours to cover the 60 miles between Florida and Bimini. By the time they arrived, the customs office was closed. They stayed in the harbor for the night, and before going to bed, they were able to see the sunset over the islands that were so enticing to the Duperalt family. The Pelicans put on a show for the Duperalts the following morning. The whole family enjoyed diving, exploring the beaches, and swimming in the beautiful turquoise waters. Captain Julian didn't complete his customs papers that day. Instead, the Duperalts moved toward Great Isaac Key. Then they headed to Great Abaco Island, crossing the Great Providence Channel. After crossing the channel, they entered the Great Bahama Bank. Here the water was shallower, the sea was wild with color, and the fish were plentiful. Where the bottom was rocky, the water looked dark green, the sand looked blue or turquoise, and the breaking water was white. Once at Great Abaco, they checked in, and over several days Captain Julian piloted the bluebell through the chain of islands called the Abacos. The family spent the week snorkeling, collecting shells, fishing, and enjoying their lives. On Saturday, the Duperalts and Captain Julian stopped at the office in Sandy Point to fill out forms in order to clear the Bahamas and return to the U.S. Dr. Duperalt was heard by the customs agents that this had been a once-in-a-lifetime vacation and that he hoped to be back before Christmas, possibly making Sandy Point a regular stop. They picked up some fresh water and sent some letters home. Jean had written to her mother saying that although she had a great time, she missed having time alone, and that it wasn't fun to cook for so many people. Her mother believed the letter was written tongue-in-cheek because she hadn't complained in any of the other letters she had sent home. That evening, Julian had invited a friendly local aboard for a drink, and the local noticed that Julian and his wife were drinking, but the Duperalts were not. They were seen fishing the next day, Sunday, and they returned to Sandy Point to make final arrangements to leave the following day. At the customs office, Dr. Duprault stated that his family would be back before Christmas and they would bring some things back with them when they came. They also talked with another local, telling him that a shark had been following the bluebell, but they had decided not to shoot at it. That night, Jeannie prepared a chicken, cacciatore dinner, and salad. It was the last meal ever served on the bluebell.
The next day, Julian would be found in his dinghy, towing the life raft with the body of little Rene. When found, it seemed at first that Julian didn't wave at the ship, but as they drew closer, he was seen waving and introduced himself. Then they helped him aboard and retrieved poor little Renee's body. Of course, they wanted to know what happened. Captain Julian began explaining with tears in his eyes and strain in his voice that the previous night a violent gust of wind or a squall had come up, and it knocked the main mast down, which broke through the ship. The mast knocked a hole in the hull, which allowed water to rush in. The main mast pulled down the second mast, which fell, causing damage to the engine, and it caused a fire. It was a nightmare, and everything happened so fast that the boat sank. Julian was able to launch the dinghy and raft, but all the rest died on the boat. He was the only survivor. As he drifted in the dinghy in the dark, he searched for the others, but he was only able to find the body of little Rene. The Coast Guard was alerted to look for the boat and any possible survivors. The Gulf Lion took Julian to Nassau. There, the crew gave him $180, which he used to fly back to Fort Lauderdale. When he arrived back in Florida, he was allowed to rest briefly, but the next day he was interviewed by the Coast Guard about the sinking of the Bluebell and the deaths of all aboard. He was observed to be in good spirits as he entered the Coast Guard offices for his interview. This was surprising to the officers because his new wife was dead, and he was partially responsible for the death of an entire family. It had only been four days since the boat sank. Julian was well-dressed and smiled as he was introduced to others in the room. Before he began his recitation of what had happened to the boat and crew, he asked about possible survivors and whether the wreckage of the bluebell had been found. He stuttered more than normal, but this was considered to be due to stress. He was told that no survivors were found, and no debris from the bluebell was found either. The investigating officers wanted to find out if anything Captain Julian had done contributed to the maritime disaster. Unknown to the people around him, the Bluebell was actually the third boat that Julian had lost, but this was the first time he lost his passengers, too. Under oath, he told the following story. He and Dr. Duperalt had planned two days to sail the 200 miles back to Florida. They planned to sail night and day. They left from Sandy Point as night fell and headed towards the North Providence Channel. They planned to stop in the calm water behind one of the islands for a few hours to sleep and then proceed to Great Isaac. They'd sleep there for a few more hours and then finish the rest of the trip back to Fort Lauderdale. The wind was blowing a comfortable 15 knots, and they had a safe, conservative plan. Julian said there were a few small rain squalls in the distance, and it must have been one of these that hit them somewhere between Sandy Point and Great Isaac. He said that everyone was sitting in the cockpit when the squall hit, and it was much stronger than the squalls they'd already passed through. The sudden gust of wind snapped the main mast, which pierced the deck and the hull. It pulled the second mast down. This left only the hull itself. The boat was bobbing around without any steerage. The wires that supported the mast, called shrouds, fell and injured the passengers in the cockpit. Julian stuttered and cried as he said the wires whipped and tore at everything. Fortunately, no one was hit by the falling mast, but the splinters and wires 
had cut Julian's wife Mary and the good Dr. Duperalt. Julian ran forward to the front berth to get wire cutters so he could cut things loose. When he came back up, he saw that a fire had started near the cockpit and that everyone had moved to the very back of the boat. He said he saw that the children had life jackets on and that the adults had been carrying flotation cushions. They were standing near the gas tanks. He ran below to get the fire extinguishers. That's when he saw that the boat was already filling up with water. When he came back up, flames were shooting out of the engine area and had covered the cockpit. He used up all the extinguishers, but they did little good, so he decided to launch the life raft and dinghy. He put them in the water, and as he did, the Duperalts, fearing for their safety, decided it was time to jump in. They'd wait for Julian to come back for them. He launched the dinghy and the life raft, but the yells from the Duperalts and his wife were growing fainter. He left the boat as it was sinking quickly. Then he searched for hours, looking for survivors, but the only one he found was Renee, and she was already dead. He said that he shouted until he couldn't anymore, but he never heard a response. By the time he found Renee, he was so physically and emotionally exhausted he could barely get her on board. He tried to perform CPR on her, but it wasn't successful. He kept going on about how tired he was, how the sea was building, and then said he could do nothing except drift. The next morning he opened the emergency rations and began to worry that he would drift into the Gulf Stream, which would carry him north and then out to sea, away from land and rescuers. He rationed the food and said the waves were eight to ten feet tall. He kept getting doused with water. He thought that the wind speed had built to twenty knots. He was contemplating what his options were when he saw a boat in the distance, and lucky for him, someone from the boat saw him and they came to pick him up. The investigators found his testimony fishy, no pun intended. They wondered why Julian emphasized having done things all by himself, all alone, as if he were the only one with any experience on the boat. Arthur Duperalt had been in the Navy. He wouldn't have stood around dumbfounded when the ship hit the fan. All right, that pun was intended. They wondered if Julian was hiding something, or perhaps he was just feeling bad for his part in the death of all his passengers. They also wondered how the mask could have broken and pierced the hull, as Julian claimed it did. Usually a mask just falls over to the side. It doesn't poke a hole through the bottom of the boat. Secondly, when the fire broke out, why did the passengers stay at the back where the fire was? Why didn't they move to the front of the boat, away from the fire and gas? Third, the dinghy had a sail. Why didn't Julian, an experienced sailor, just hoist the sail and sail to the nearest island to get help? The winds were favorable to be able to sail to many closer islands. And finally, there were flares in the emergency life raft. Why didn't he use them? The investigators asked these questions. But first, they asked Julian why he didn't call for help using the VHF. His response was that the mast took the antenna down when it fell. He then admitted that he didn't even attempt to use the radio. He said he knew it wouldn't work. As for the flares, well, they were way down in the emergency kit, and he didn't want to do that kind of work to get to them. He was too tired, and frankly, didn't think of them. Julian's response as to why he didn't sail the dinghy was that the winds were too strong, and since he was towing the life raft, he felt that he would have swamped the dinghy. 
Also, once again, he was just too tired. The primary investigator agreed that it was possible that the captain was correct about the dinghy not being able to sail with the raft attached. His final question to Julian was, why didn't he use the emergency beacon that the owner had placed on board? Julian said that he did. He had thrown it into the ocean and believed it was working. When asked if he pulled the cord that started the emergency carbide beacon, Julian said he didn't know about any cord. The investigator was stunned. Any captain would know about this and know how to use it. At the time, it was standard equipment on any large ocean-going vessel. At this point, the investigator asked Julian how much experience he had in these waters. Julian became angry and replied indignantly that he had years of experience sailing in the Bohemian waters. As Julian's interview ended, the interview with the Bluebell's owner began. It was during the second interview that someone rushed in with good news. One of the Bluebell's passengers had been found alive. When Julian was telling his story, three days after he had been found, and four days after the sinking of the Bluebell, a sailor on a freighter headed towards Texas was passing through the North Providence Channel. This sailor spotted something in the distance that looked just a little bit different from all the thousands of whitecaps surrounding his boat on all sides. It didn't seem to disappear. He continued to watch it through the sun's glare, believing that it was probably some debris he should avoid. As he drew closer, the thought was that it must be a small dinghy with someone in it. He thought he saw a small bump that might be a fisherman, but then he realized that no fisherman could be out this far. He called to the captain, who steered towards the little bump. As they came closer, they realized with astonishment and horror that it was a little girl balanced on a cork float. She was able to wave weakly at them, and as they came nearer, they could see she was wearing a little white blouse and was balanced precariously on the tiny raft. One of the crewmen took a picture of her as she squinted up at them. They put together a makeshift raft to try to reach her and were hurried along by the captain who claimed to see sharks. Perhaps they'd been following the raft for a few days, or maybe they were attracted by the sounds of the boat and the slap of oars. In time, they were able to get her aboard safely. She was emaciated and sunburnt. She hadn't eaten or drank for days. They gave her small sips of orange juice and sponged her clean of the salt that encrusted her face and body. She was unable to answer their questions. The captain asked her name and told her that he wanted to call the authorities so they could find her family to come get her. All she could do was shake her head and gesture downward with her thumb. Sorrowfully, the captain understood her gestures. He said, you can't be sure that they're gone. Perhaps they were saved by a passing boat. She shook her head and pointed down to say that they had drowned. She then rasped the word, Bluebell. He asked for her name, and she whispered hoarsely, Terry Joe Duperalt. Then she fell unconscious. The captain had heard a marine broadcast about Captain Julian having been saved several days earlier. He called the Coast Guard, telling them what had happened and who she was. They told him to get the girl ready and that a helicopter would come pick her up. This was the news that was brought into the room following Julian's interview. 
it was clear that he was not the only one to survive the accident. Back at the Coast Guard station, after hearing the news that Terry Joe survived, Julian excused himself from the interview. Oh, my God, he stated. Then he raised his head and said, Isn't that wonderful? He then got up and walked out of the Coast Guard station. He checked into a local motel. He had with him a suitcase and a couple of paper bags. The next morning, when a maid went to knock on the door of Julian's room, no one answered her knock. She let herself in. Immediately she noticed a strange odor and then saw a small drop of what appeared to be blood on one of the twin beds. The voices inside her head were probably cursing like a sailor when she saw empty bottles of whiskey laying around the room. She decided to take the dirty towels from the bathroom, but when she tried to open the door, there was something blocking it. She pushed harder. Through the crack in the door, she saw a body. It was only then that she recognized the smell as blood. She screamed and called the manager. She and the manager were not able to open the door, so they called the police. When the officer arrived, he was finally able to open it, and he recognized Julian from the news. His face had been all over the media the day before, but the officer had also known Julian personally from his days working as a local Marine patrolman. They found out that Julian had signed in under a false name and had planned his own demise. That night, Julian drank heavily and began to write a letter to a friend. He wrote of the love for his son and about arrangements for his son to be adopted by the family he often stayed with. He said he couldn't continue and was going out now, that he didn't like life or didn't know what to do with it. There was absolutely no mention of his wife or the passengers on the bluebell. He had, however, written on the back of the letter, Cremate and Bury at Sea. Then he scratched out Cremate and left Bury at Sea. Police believed he had cut into a vein in his thigh, and as blood leaked out onto the bed, he pulled up his pants and moved to the bathroom. He had pinned money to a pillow for the maid. At some point, he had gone into his briefcase and carried a picture of his wife and son, which he placed on the toilet so he could look at them as he cut himself on the wrists, thighs, forearms, and even his neck. He was vicious with this effort and cut all the way through to bone in some places. He was cut so badly that some people wondered if he had been murdered, but that didn't seem to be the case. So why had this man completed suicide when there was hope of survivors, maybe even his wife? A friend of Julian said that Julian told him that as he sat in the boat with the young girl floating dead behind him, he didn't know what the purpose of his life was anymore. Meanwhile, Terry Jo was healing nicely in the hospital, and she was finally feeling well enough to tell the story of what had happened on the boat. She told a drastically different story to the one that Julian had told. It was about 9 p.m. when Terry Joe, the oldest daughter, headed down below deck to go to sleep in the small cabin at the back of the boat. Normally, her sister Renee would sleep there with her, but that night her younger sister remained sitting with her parents and brother in the cockpit. In the middle of the night, Terry Joe was startled awake by the sound of her brother yelling, Help! Daddy, help! He heard running and stomping noises, and then the boat was silent. She lay in her bed, scared and shivering. After about five minutes, she crept out of the cabin. 
she moved forward into the main salon, where she saw her mother and her brother lying in a pool of blood on the floor of the boat. She knew right away that they were dead. She then climbed the stairs and stuck her head out of the hatch, where she saw more blood in the cockpit and what might have been a knife. She climbed further out of the boat and turned towards the front, where she suddenly saw Captain Julian, who lunged at her and pushed her down the stairs. He told her to get below. Heart-pounding, Terry Jo turned away from her mother and brother's bodies and went back into her sleeping quarters. Before long, she heard water sloshing and soon smelled oil. Then she was able to see water seeping into her cabin and covering the floor. She realized at that moment that the ship was sinking, but she was too scared to move. She peeked out, and she saw Captain Julian standing outside the cabin's doorway. He had something in his hands. She believed it was her brother's rifle, and he stood there looking down at her. The only sounds were of his breathing, her heart pounding in her ears, and the water hitting against the hull. The captain seemed to make a decision. He turned and walked out of the cabin. She then heard him moving around on the upper deck. The water continued to rise, and when the water began to come up over the top of her mattress, she knew she had to leave. She walked through waist-deep water and began to climb out and onto the upper decks. When she got out, she saw that the mast was leaning and that the boat's dinghy and rubber life raft were floating beside the boat. She asked if the boat was sinking. Captain Julian shouted yes. Then he pushed the rope that held the dinghy into her hands, telling her to hold on. She was numb from shock, and probably not strong enough. She accidentally let the line go, and the dinghy slowly started to float away from the bluebell, and Captain Julian dove in to get it. Terry Joe watched him swim away and then disappear. She was starting to panic. She had to do something to save herself. Then she remembered seeing a float made of cork that had been tied to the main cabin on the top side. It was just barely above water at this point. She rushed to untie it, and just as the float popped free of its bindings, the boat sank beneath her. One of the ropes from the cork float caught on the boat as it sank, and briefly she and the float were pulled underwater with the boat. Luckily, it broke free, and both of them popped back up to the surface. She hung tightly to that float, afraid that Captain Julian might be looking for her and waiting for her in the darkness. She had no food or water. Her only possessions were a wet blouse, pink pants, and her make-do raft. There was nothing to keep her warm in the chill of the night. The moon wasn't visible, and heavy clouds covered even the brightest of the stars. She could hear the wind and the water, but nothing else. In the pitch-black darkness, she couldn't see the ocean, but waves would break over her, drenching her, and not giving her any time to prepare herself. The salt water began to sting her eyes, her mouth, her skin, everything. The only thing she could think about was where her father was. The next morning, the sun came and drove the cold from her body, but she realized that she could be in even greater danger because the heat of the sun began to scorch her. Her biggest worry was that her float was beginning to disintegrate. Her legs and feet dangling over the side of the float were exposed. When snorkeling, she'd seen parrotfish, which have sharp teeth, almost more beak-like than tooth-like, and she was afraid they might nibble at her legs. 
Little did she know they preferred much shallower water than the depths she floated over. As time went on, she began to suffer the effects of dehydration. Her tongue became drier and her throat became parched and itchy. Because of the stress, she felt like she had no appetite and wasn't thirsty. On Tuesday, she saw a small red plane flying overhead and she waved at it for as long as she could using her blouse as a flag. At one point, it dipped in her direction. She frantically waved, hoping that they would see her, but the pilot of the plane passed right over the top of her, close enough that she could see the underside of it, but the angle had made it impossible for the pilot of the plane to see her. The plane had been one that was sent out by the Coast Guard to look for the remains of the Bluebell, the day after Julian had been found. The chances were very small that someone in a ship or plane would see her tiny float. It was white, her blouse was white, and her blonde hair made her look just like any other white cap, topping the millions of waves tumbling over the ocean. Later that afternoon, she saw shapes underneath the water, about thirty yards from where she was. Her heart caught in her throat because she thought they were sharks, but as they came closer, she could see that they were porpoises. They would look at her with their large eyes, and she felt comforted by the sounds they made as they came to the surface to breathe. She said a little prayer of thanks that God would send them to her in her time of need. They stayed close to her for hours. As the sun broke through the clouds late in the afternoon, Terry Jo splashed water over her sunburnt tight skin. She imagined her home in Wisconsin in the cold waters of Green Bay. Finally, the sun dropped and sank below the horizon. That night brought back the awful darkness, but it also brought back some comfort to her sunburnt skin. As she rose and fell with the waves, she slept fitfully, off and on, and dreamt that she was on a plane coming in for a landing. In the dream, she saw her dad seated next to her, drinking a glass of red wine. Although she had never tasted wine in her life, she thought that it looked refreshing and was just what she needed. The next day, the sun rose hot again. The skies were clear, and the sun was relentless. It caused her eyes to dry and caused severe pain. Her body ached, and her skin burned even through her blouse and her pants. Her lips began to swell. Most of the time she was on the float, she had to balance herself because the float was becoming more and more unsteady, as the rope that held it together continued to break away piece by piece. She began to hallucinate more often and imagine seeing tiny islands. When she did this, she would try to paddle towards them, but eventually she fell unconscious. When the sun rose on Thursday morning, she no longer felt the heat and the burning rays. She was in a deep sleep that bordered on death. The waves were relentless and came at her, one after the other. Only the littlest bit of life remained in her, but she was able to emerge from her stupor and opened her eyes when she sensed something. She realized there was a huge shadow before her. She heard a deep rumbling sound, one that she could feel in her chest. Finally, she realized that it was a boat coming nearer to her, and she saw people waving at her. She summoned all her remaining strength to wave back at them, Eventually, she could hear the sounds of their voices shouting. Then she felt strong arms lifting her before she slid back into unconsciousness. 
She has told her story many times, and it has never varied. She was quite sure of what she saw. The mast never fell. There was no fire. There was blood in the cockpit, and her mother and brother were bloody and dead in the main cabin. The boat was never found. Her story was of a brutal mass murder. Unfortunately, there are questions that can never be answered. What happened to Terry Joe's father and sister? What about Julian's wife? In the aftermath of the murders, Julian was studied a little harder. His motives are unknown. However, his past might give us some clues. Shortly before leaving on this trip, he had taken out a $20,000 insurance policy on his wife. It included a double indemnity clause. This meant that the amount doubled if the death was due to an accident. This would be equal to about $350,000 U.S. in today's money. This wasn't the first time he had come into money due to tragedy. After attending Purdue for an engineering degree, he signed up for the Air Cadets and had had a promising military career. He'd flown B-24 bombers and looked for Nazi subs off the beaches of Florida. At a social event, he met a 17-year-old debutante. She fell for him immediately, and they were quickly married. She said he was very egotistical, and even though they had divorced amicably, he met someone else very soon after. He went to war, then back to Purdue, where he met a second socialite, who he married and who had his son Lance. He was still in the Air Force and used his free time to conduct affairs with many women. In 1949, he was driving back to base with his wife and his mother-in-law when he lost control of his car. He said he was moving at about 40 miles an hour over a bridge when he lost steering. The car flipped over the railing and it quickly sank in 20 feet of water. Julian said as the car was flipping in the air, he was able to get the door open and jump out. But when the car was found, the door was closed, but the window was down. His wife and mother-in-law never made it out. Observers said Julian stood on the sidelines, watching the chaos. He never made an attempt to help his wife or mother-in-law, even though he was known to be a strong swimmer. He seemed to be boasting about how easy it was to get out of the car because he had experience getting out of crashing airplanes. To divers, it looked like he waited until the car had filled, then opened the window, swimming out and leaving his wife and mother-in-law. Even worse, he made no effort to help others as they entered the water to try and help find the women. His father-in-law even came to the base to accuse him of murder, but there was nothing that could prove that Julian had killed them. Nothing was entered on his military or civilian record, and shortly after, he was able to collect on his wife's insurance. A military doctor said informally that Julian was an immoral man with no real sense of empathy. Within weeks after his wife's death, Julian was living with another woman. Shortly after, he married again to a third wife who believed she was only his second. When interviewed, she said that he only loved himself and that he would have violent bursts of temper. They soon divorced. This pattern continued, and luckily the following wives were not insured and were divorced rather than murdered. The primary theory was that a lot of time had passed since his second wife was murdered. Allegedly murdered. Money was running low. 
so it's possible that Julian was caught by Dr. Dupra while killing his wife or disposing of her body. If he hadn't been caught, he likely would have woken everyone, claiming that she'd fallen overboard. But if he was caught in the act, Julian may have panicked, killing Dr. Duperalt, and then he decided he had to kill his wife and son as they came to investigate the noise. He probably planned to let the girls drown with the boat. A second theory was put forth, that Julian was tied up in drug running and insurance fraud. He had sunk two boats previously under his control. Witnesses, who were passengers aboard one of the boats that sank, said it seemed to her that Julian drove purposefully right at a submerged wreck that was known to be in the harbor. Julian had sued for improper marking of the submerged vessel and for the amount of money he had the boat insured for. He won both cases. The drug runner theory was that he was supposed to carry drugs back to the States or pass them off to someone that evening, but something went wrong and Dr. Duperalt observed the transaction and was killed because he saw more than he was supposed to. These theories seem a little bit more far-fetched to me, especially with guests on board, but he had had guests on board when he sunk a ship prior to this. Terry Jo was returned to Green Bay to live with her aunt and cousins. Nearly 50 years later, in 2010, she helped Roger Logan write a book called Alone, Orphaned on the Ocean. I suggest you read it if you're interested in learning more details of this story. In it, she was quoted as saying, I always believed I was saved for a reason. If one person heals from a life tragedy after reading my story, my journey will have been worth it. Her story is both heartbreaking and inspiring. I know there are several twisted listeners who live on boats, and many who are cruising the same waters that Terry Joe and her family did. Tip a glass in remembrance of the Duperalts and brave Terry Joe. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Twisted Travel and True Crime. I'd like to take a quick moment to thank my newest supporters. Thank you so much, Stuart W. and again, Jamie C. for becoming uh, Patreons. You are the absolute best. And thank you so much once again to everyone who helps support the podcast in any way, whether that's rating, reviewing, or just making a quick comment on social media to help promote the podcast. I appreciate you all, and to all of you, I wish you fair winds, following seas, and safe travels of all kinds.